Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 412. And today in the show, we're back for another one of our habitat-specific roundtables, with our focus being how to hunt deer in swamps, marshes, and wetlands from Wisconsin all the way down to Florida. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Onyx. Today in the show, we're back here for another one of our habitat-specific roundtable masterclass, whatever you want to call it. These things are, uh, uh, I think, they've been really interesting. We are drilling down to the nitty-gritty of hunting a very specific kind of habitat, and to do that, we get a bunch of different expert perspectives. As has been the case with all these roundtables that we've done so far this year, I'm joined by my buddy. Andy May, who I think most of you by now know is one of the best DIY deer hunters out there in the country, and he's also a swamp and marsh hunting expert himself. He does a lot of this up here in Michigan and elsewhere, so he's along to share his ideas, but he also nominated two other swamp specialists to round out our group today. First, we've got Joe Rentmeester. He's a Wisconsin public land bow hunter who many of you probably know from the Hunting Beast or the Hunting Public, Public Land Challenges, uh, or his past appearance on this show. Uh, but secondly, we've got Doug White, and he's a more under-the-radar guy. Uh, you might know him if you are a part of the Hunting Beast community. He goes by the name of PK there. But uh, what makes him particularly unique and why I'm really excited that he's joining us here today is that he's finding and hunting great deer in swamps. But he's doing it down in Florida. I mean, some really tough stuff, very different than what we're dealing with in the Midwest in certain ways, but also interestingly similar. So that's what we have in store. This is a great episode. There's a lot to unpack, so I don't want to drag this out too long. I think we should just get right into it. Enjoy the show. Thanks for being here. Let's get into it. All right. Here with me on the line, we have got a hell of a group. Talking Swamp tonight, we've got Joe Rentmeester, Doug White, and Andy May. And I'll just thank you all 
from the get-go for taking the time to be here with us. And since we've got this four-person format, which can sometimes get a little confusing, uh, I'm going to just pitch it right to Andy to try to get us started. And Andy, as we've done with this series over the course of the last couple months, you know, you've kind of taken the lead on finding people who you really want to learn from about these specific habitat types. And I love that because if you want to learn from these guys, I know that every single other person out there basically in the world can learn something too. So uh, so to kick us off, man, can you tell me you know, a little bit about why you chose Joe and Doug, who they are and, and what, what they have to share here? Yeah. Uh, so we got Joe Rentmeester, who, uh, you know, is pretty well known. Um, he's a phenomenal hunter. And what, what I love about Joe is he's a young dude. Like he's a, he's very early still in his hunting career. Um, but wise beyond his years. Um, I try to think back to like when I was that age. Um, and although I was doing pretty well, I don't think I had near the knowledge that Joe has, um, you know, at that same age. So he's just a, he's a great hunter. Um, I've listened to his podcast. We talk, um, through text message quite often, and he's just a guy that I'm learning from. Um, I love the the info he shares like on, on podcasts and on the hunting beasts and stuff. So I've just been real impressed with him. I know he hunts quite a bit of this and he's had, um, some experience hunting with a couple of other guys, one of his best buddies, um, who he speaks very high of, uh, you know, as far as hunting swamps and marshes and then of course, Dan Infault. So, you know, he's, he's had some good teachers and, and guys to learn from himself. So yeah. I think he's going to be an awesome guy to chat with. And then we got Doug White, who is also a hunting beast guy. Um, on, you know, if, if you're a hunting beast, um, member, uh, this is PK and <laughs> he's, he's very well known. He is Mr. Consistent. Um, What's cool about him is he, he's very private, um, but he does share on the hunting beast. And when you, when you hear him talk, you just like, all right, this guy, this guy gets it. He, he knows what he's talking about. And what I, what I really wanted to, I really wanted to have him on here because he hunts for the most part, a, a completely different part of the country, but still hunts kind of the swamps and marsh type setting. So he's, he's based out of Florida and uh, we'll let him dive into that a little bit, but like I know nothing about that. Um, and I'm guessing there's going to be some overlap as far as like what, you know, maybe you and I and Joe look for, you know, in swamps and marshes. I, I, I'm guessing there's going to be some overlap there with, with Doug, but I'm really interested to hear his take on, on this whole setting. So yeah, it should be a, it should be a heck of a conversation, I think. Yeah, we've got a nice mix of some solid Midwest experience, the upper Midwest experience. And of course, you know, I know all four of us have traveled quite, quite uh, substantially around the country. And then Doug bringing in that unique Southern twist is going to make this a really good kind of overview of all things, swamps, wetlands, marshes, etc. Um, so Andy, where did you want to start with this? Yeah, one more thing. One more thing about Doug. That this uh, it was a few years ago. Like I, I, I'm always blown away by his consistent success. He's always killing two, three, four. I don't know how many bucks a year, but there was this one picture of him 
and he's on one of those paddle boards. <laughs> he's, he's, I saw this. He's like, he's head to toe, you know, all I could see is his eyes and he's, he's paddling out this nice buck out of some swamp down in Florida. And I'm like, who, who is this swamp murdering ninja here? Like <laughs> I need to talk to this guy. I mean, it was the greatest picture of all time. So, um, yeah, let, actually I want to start with Doug. Um, in fact, because I was having trouble coming up with questions for you specifically. Um, so mainly because I'm not real familiar with the type of swamps and marshes that you have down there. So maybe if you could like just explain some of the different types of settings that you're, you're hunting down in Florida, and then maybe we can kind of relate that back to what we see up here. So Doug, if you want to take that away. Yeah. Yeah, man. Uh, like most states, um, it's a lot of variation as you travel mostly, you know, from South to North. So basically out my back door is the Everglades, which is, I mean, uh, very similar to a cattail swamp, except it's just vast and endless. Um, very, very few tree islands, some cypress, which is like a swamp um, type of tree. Uh, you have, you know, some cypress strands and uh, cypress heads, very few oak heads. Uh, as you travel up through the state, uh, you get a little, you get a lot, of, still a lot of marshes. Um, that come out of like the, you know, obviously Florida has a lot of water systems, um, and around those water systems, you get a lot of marshes, uh, swamps. Um, I try to stay away from the canopied swamps, uh, the big bass canopied swamps. That's some real tough stuff to hunt. Um, and then, uh, as you get up into North Florida, you get, you know, you get your, um, your ridges, you actually get a little bit of elevation, uh, and then you get swamps down in the bottom, um, very similar a uh, lot to like uh like creek bottom type stuff when you when you travel doug i know you travel to other states too do you find that your experience in the swamps of florida translates to other wet areas around the country in the midwest or wherever else you go uh, or is or is florida just a beast of its own florida much of florida especially like peninsular florida um it is very i I want to say it's different, but there's obviously there's, there's principles that, uh, that carry over. Um, everything in Florida is kind of magnified. Um, there's the pressure is unreal. Um, the amount of deer in most places is just very low. So the things that you're keying in on, um, it's a lot more, um, detail oriented. Um, it, it's a lot harder in between. You got a lot more space in between deer. So, but, um, but it definitely carries over the principles of, you know, obviously the deer, they got to bed on dry ground, you know, uh, they got to have places where they can travel and eat and it's all the same stuff. Yeah, man. Well, considering the challenges you're, you're laying out there for Florida and, and that I've kind of assumed from just things I've read in the past and heard from other people, the, the deer that you've pulled out of these spots in Florida are, is just doubly impressive. I mean, there's you've killed some really nice deer for anywhere, let alone the, I don't know, the Everglades. I mean, that's, uh, that's pretty I, next I level. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. A lot of the nicer deer that I've killed have definitely come from, uh, like North of Lake Okeechobee. It's, it's a lot harder. Uh, of course that one picture you were talking about, that was down South. Um, but yeah, down South, South of the lake, it's, uh, it's real tough to find anything with some bone on it. <laughs> I bet. Uh, so Andy, you know, the first thing that comes to my mind when I think about swamps 
is scouting with maps. That's that's the first thing that pops in my mind. But I'm curious, what's the first thing that pops into your mind when you started thinking about this topic? And and are we thinking the same thing, or did you want to kick these guys in a different direction? No, that's the that's the first thing um, that I think about too. In fact, um, that's one of the reasons I like hunting swamps and marshes so much i hunt quite a bit of this stuff um and i find it at least where i'm at i find it fairly easy to break down and hunt but not easy to get into them if that makes sense so like the game plan i feel like for me is it's it's fairly easy to figure out where to go and what to scout, like the transition lines and all that are are usually pretty clear, but what makes it hard a lot of the time is accessing it. A lot of time it's a lot of physical work, which can keep obviously the majority of the hunters out. I think like swamps and marshes tend to get are tend to be better in high pressured areas because it just pushes more, the more mature deer into them. So, um, I don't know if you guys kind of feel that same way, but like, as far as like, as far as cyber scouting and reading maps, like I find this the easiest to pick apart, but not necessarily the easiest to access. It it requires a lot of physical uh, labor. A lot of times is, would you agree with that, Joe? Yeah. So I would definitely agree with that. Um, The one thing you, if you throw in there is, uh, cedar swamps if you were to look at like a cedar swamp on a map that's where you're really in my opinion you really can't decipher much i mean you could cedar swamps still have transitions and you can still kind of find those um but with the cedar swamps you really have to get into them and kind of pick them apart you have to kind of get in there on foot so that part i would say is a little bit different yeah we have some of that up north uh, yeah. in northern michigan i've actually never hunted like a true cedar swamp. I've hunted tamarack. I've hunted like tag alders, lots of like, uh, the red osier dogwood, um, just a lot of cat, you know, cattail marshes and whatnot. But the, the cedar swamp, we, we have quite a bit of that up North, but I've actually never hunted it. And I've heard the same thing. I've heard it could be very difficult. Um, how about you, Doug, as far as like reading the maps, is that, is that pretty much what you start with? Yeah, for sure. I'm a big map guy. I mean, I live in South Florida, so a lot of places I hunt, it's a drive. I can't really put boots on the ground. I hunt giant tracts of land. Um, so basically, I am narrowing down a lot on the map. And um, there might be some huge pieces of public that I might not even really go to because I can't narrow down on the map because it's not the right uh, sort of terrain. You know, you got those those giant swamps. If they don't have good hard edges um, or, like, deep water edges or – something that I can key in on, on the map. Um, you know, unless I have some Intel on that place or, you know, something like that, I might just write, write that place off and, and go somewhere that's, uh, more, more catered to, you know, my style and, um, a little more, uh, efficient. Can you elaborate on that a little bit, Doug? Cause I've, I read you write something about this where you said that you'll, you'll avoid areas with these soft edges as you call them or kind of indistinct rolling terrain stuff like that and that you really as you just said 
really look for those hard edges. Can you explain like what you mean by that and what that looks like on a map? Because I'm imagining when someone's trying to figure out how to pick apart a swamp when looking at a map <laughs> at first glance, um, for new people, yeah. at least, that could be intimidating. It's, it's, it can be hard even when you've been doing it forever, uh, especially if you're going to travel to new places and new swamps where you've never been in that area. And I've, I've done that where I've looked at maps and thought, you know, and ended up when I'm standing there, what I thought was the high ground was the low ground and vice versa. Um, so you kind of have to take everything with a grain of salt. But um, as far as maps where you know what the terrain looks like, you know what the vegetation looks like, and you can see it on the map. Um, basically, you know, people have different terms for the edge type, soft edge, hard edge. To me, a hard edge is if I'm on the edge of that swamp and, you know, I'll just keep it for Florida guys. If you got cypress on your right, and you got, say, pines on your left, and you can, say, reach out with your right hand and touch the cypress, and you can reach out with your left and touch the pines, that's a hard edge. you got a hard line right there. But if it kind of bleeds in and, say, it takes 50 yards, 100 yards, where it's mixed cypress and pines, um, it's, it, it's going to be a lot harder to nail down exactly where that deer is going to move through there. Um, so I don't know. So, and what it looks like on the map, I mean, if you know what the, the different types of trees look like or the different types of vegetation, um, I mean, it's just going to be literally a hard line um, where those two, two vegetation types meet. They, you don't want to see them really blended together. Um, in some cases, you might if you're gun hunting. I like that kind of stuff. But if you're talking mostly like bow hunting, a lot, and a lot of guys who listen to this are hardcore bow hunters. So, I mean, you're really trying to, to nail down where that deer is going to walk. And uh, it just makes it a lot easier when you got the defined terrain. Um, like you said, with rolling terrain, same thing for hill country. I look for the steepest stuff I can find, and I look for places that only have a little bit of it so I know where to key in on, because otherwise you're, you've got the same problem of everything looks good everywhere and you can't be everywhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Joe, do you look for something similar when it comes to f- kind of prioritizing areas that have that really distinct hard edge? Uh, not necessarily. Um because when you have that around here, it seems when you have that hard edge, you also have um, other people finding the same spots and pushing the deer out of there pretty fast. Hmm. Um, so then you you end up finding yourselves in those spots that don't have the hard edge that are a little bit more difficult to find out and figure out. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I guess just really, yeah. So, so that's interesting. So then what, when you're looking at the map, then if the hard edge for you isn't working as well up in Wisconsin or that part, what on the map's, are you keying in on otherwise? Sure. So you can still kind of catch a little, I'm thinking of a local swamp near me. You could still kind of catch little points that jet out or jet in. So like, let's say you have a line of cedars and cattails and it's, it's more of a soft line. You can still kind of see those spots where the soft line might dip in or the soft line might dip out. And that's where I like to check. And you usually have a trail either running into the cedars or out of the cedars. Um, those are great starting points, but then it's tricky because there can be that one lone high tree out in the cattails that is holding bedding that everyone's going past, or, um, it it can be very deceiving. So, I mean, it's a starting point, but gosh, you really, if you can, you really want to tear through an entire swamp like that and just kind of pick it apart in my opinion. What else does for you? Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Andy. Sorry. I was going to cut in real quick. Um, just to go off of what, what Joe was saying, I, I see the same thing. I see. Um, we, I end up finding a lot of the buck, uh, bedding on some of those feathered edges. Like it might be where, um, where uh, a hardwoods point kind of comes down into say the marsh or swamp, but then 
off of that, there might be, it might go down into some like some tag altars and then kind of turn into more like dogwood. So like on a map, it looks like it kind of looks feathered. Um, you can still see uh, an edge in a, in a point that kind of goes out into the marsh, but it, it it's different stages of like vegetation. Um, and a lot of times I'll find the bedding like in that, in that dogwood that's kind of out into the marsh a little bit, but it just looks a little thicker. Like on the map, it looks like a little thicker, a little more structure than say the cattails that are just beyond that. Um, and then like Joe said, like a lot of times there'll be like a lone tree out there or a small, a small tiny Island. It could be the size of like a, you know, a 500 square foot house or something or a hundred or a thousand square foot house. You know, sometimes I'll find them in there, but, um, a lot of times we don't have that real distinct edge. It kind of, it kind of feathers out into there. So that's, it's kind of interesting to hear the differences there. Yeah. So to back to you, Doug, then you're looking for the hard edges, which maybe is a little different than what we're seeing up here. Um, what about mm-hmm. the other things that Andy and Joe just mentioned stuff like those points jutting in and out or those little islands? Uh, is that Absolutely. something? Absolutely. Yeah. No, they're spot on. And really, and I, I didn't really get too much into it, but like with those hard edges, I very rarely find bucks uh, bedded right up there. And obviously, like Joe said, if it's a good looking hard edge and it's pretty easy to get to, you can bet you're going to find a stand every, you know, a few hundred yards. Um, but it gives you a starting point, like Joe said. And then, yeah, then you're looking for those more subtle, um, you know, those little tucked away spots where those bucks like to, um, hang out and let the other deer and people walk right by them sometimes, or they're tucked way back in. But, um, yeah, I'm definitely seeing what, what they're saying also. Okay. And on these maps, you know, what are the things that you're looking for? Like kind of visually on these maps to clue you in on some of those other features. Like I, I it's really easy to understand a, a really clear hard edge when I'm looking at a map, but for someone down South, that has maybe a little bit different kind of wetland, you know, are islands easy to identify? Are those little high spots easy to identify when looking at an aerial map or, or what little clues are you looking for on that side of things? Yes with the and maps? No. Sorry. Yeah. Yes. And no, sometimes they are very clear. Um, sometimes they're not, sometimes it takes, you know, walking around in certain terrain and figuring out what stuff actually looks like on the map. Um, you know, I've had buddies send me pens, um, I said, man, this looks like a good little clearing, you know, inside of this swamp. And I'm like, that, that's a gator hole. That's a pond. That's not, <laughs> you know, it's going to be chest ahead high water. Um, just because I've walked through so many of those places. Um, so some of it is easy to see, you know, if there's a pine tree that's in the middle of Cypress and you get a picture where those, you know, the Cypress aren't green where they drop their needles. I mean, you're going to see that pine tree or that palm tree. Uh, if you've got a good resolution, you know, um, on the aerial map. Um, but yes, a lot of times it is easy to see. Um, but then when I see that, like, like Joe said, if, if, if you see it, man, other people are probably seeing it. So it, you, you kind of got to base that off. You got to go in there and see, you know, is somebody else hitting it, um, or not. Yeah. I'll tell you what you mentioned. One of my biggest issues I have up here in Michigan is when you find those gator holes, that those things are real tricky up here in Michigan. I can't tell you. I, mean, I tell you, what, I cannot imagine hunting in a spot where there could be gators as you're hiking in. Uh, man, props to you. 
Nah, yeah, they're just part of life down here. And I mean, for the most part, they don't want nothing to do with you. <laughs> All right. I'll take your word for it. Um, <laughs> I don't know if this is the right next step here, but but I'm, I think it, we probably need to just spell out a little bit more of the basic building blocks of swamp hunting in that we've kind of mentioned you look for edges, you look for points, you look for islands, but we haven't really talked about why that stuff matters. Like, how are these deer using these different features in a swamp? Um, we all know because we've talked about this stuff before, but there's probably some people out there who don't. Um, so, I don't know. Joe, do you want to take a first stab at kind of describing why some of these key features that you mentioned matter? Like, where are these bucks bedding? How are these deer traveling? Uh, what kind of stuff are they feeding on or, or heading to feed on? Can you kind of lay out what you see up in your area? And then and then we'll bounce to, to both Andy and Doug, too, I'd like to hear. Yeah. So one thing I guess I kind of want to backpedal on a little bit that'll blend in with what you're asking. Um, time of the year makes a big difference for us up here in the North where I guess I'm curious too, in Florida, what that, what, how time of the year changes things. But in the winter, for example, you're not necessarily going to see the deer on the points because the points you got ice, you got snow, people are getting into those swamps. Um, you got cold weather and deer start, you start seeing the deer by us getting pushed into like your cedars. And then where particularly in the cedars, I find them usually are in your, your tightest clusters of cedars. Um, they almost stick out on a map. Like if you were to look at a cedar swamp on a map, you'd see like a, a real tight, dark spot where you get maybe say um, 10 cedar trees just clustered really tight together. And they seem to just bed under those in those types of spots. And uh, in the winter, part of it is they're getting out of the wind, in my opinion. Um, and they're, they, they have food right there, the cedars themselves. So time of the year makes a big difference. Um, and, and refresh me again. I was going to kind of blend it into your question there. What was your question? Yeah, I was just going to ask you to to describe how you typically see deer using some of these key features. So you, you just mentioned one of them being one of the kinds of spots they bed. But if you could kind of run down like these types of features are where I typically see them bedding. These are how I typically see them traveling using different edges or points or whatever uh, feeding to uh, just a little overview of of those types of things would be helpful to kind of lay the stage. Yeah. Um, so I guess for the bedding, it's just, it, it seems th those lone, when things are wet and there's not a ton of pressure, those lone single trees um, that have a little base underneath them just seem to hold the deer pretty well. Um, if there's not a lot of pressure, in my experience, they're not usually terribly deep into the swamp. Um, if you got people right on the edge or getting into the swamp a little ways, the deer might be pressured in deeper. I've also seen it too, where you get so much pressure in the swamps, deer will come out of the swamps and they'll be bedded in your overlook spots. Um, and then I guess to touch on food, I mean, food, when you're trying to pick out a swamp too, food is so important in regards to what swamps are holding the deer. Um, in the early season, I guess, if you have a, if you have a swamp with new seeding alfalfa butted up against it, you can bet there's going to be deer coming out on that side of it in comparison to say a swamp that's just surrounded by, um, I don't know, hardwoods that isn't dropping acorns. So that's another thing is really for us figuring out where that food is and, and if the deer are even going to be in those swamps. Cause I've got swamps up here that are awesome at certain times of the year and they're just, they're vacant of deer at other times of the year. Um, so I'm, I guess that, that kind of gets you going on that topic. Yeah. Since sticking in the Midwest kind of area, Andy, what would you add to this part of the country and, and how you're seeing deer use this stuff? Yeah, I see a lot of the same things. Just, just kind of going back to like some of the the, the features where, you know, if, if I'm talking, I mean, I guess we're kind of talking about bucks here, specifically mature bucks, you know, I'm, 
I'm definitely, you know, we all know about, you know, the points that kind of, that kind of jut out into the marsh or swamp. Like Joe said, um, if there's water, anything that's high ground, which could be, um, you know, a lone tree out there or, or a little island of, um, you know, tag alders or, or a lot, a lot of this stuff, I don't even know what it is out there. It's just like high ground where there's like little trees. Um, I see them bedding on that. Um, bowls like along the transition where it kind of goes it's, it's like the opposite of a point it kind of goes in i've seen them bed right there on that kind of transition too um the one thing that uh i actually learned this from joe's buddy um, um i think is Mar marsh buster on uh the hunting beast but i listened to one of his podcasts and he he was talking about how even just different pockets of vegetation it doesn't necessarily need to be trees but like a different a different type of vegetation out in the marsh that's like slightly different. Um, a lot of times those are really not so easy to see on the map. But um, after I heard that, I, I heard that like a year ago and I started looking for that on the map and started scouting out some of those spots on some public land around here. And, and sure enough, I found some bedding in there too. So um, yeah, all that stuff, all, all that stuff I mentioned, I see the bedding. And then one thing too, like with, with the cattail marsh and um that's really cool and, and we all know this and, and most people do now especially with mapping technology but you can really zoom in on those on like google earth and and really see like those trails like in such detail and you can it, it will literally it's like a blinking sign going to you know where some of these these deer are bedded and then you can go out and verify you know with boots on the ground um and then, and then to kind of piggyback off what Joe said, as far as like what, which marshes and swamps are holding, um, deer during certain times of the year. Like I, a lot of my experiences in like, um, uh, like cattail marshes that have a lot of dogwood around and those seem to really pile in deer there during the winter. And I, and I know they like to browse on the dogwood and stuff, but that's been some of my best late season spots is in some of those, uh, those dogwood swamps there, but, um, it's, it's, it was kind of interesting to, to hear him, uh, touch on that. I wanted to dive into that a little more later, but how about Doug, could you go with, uh, go off to some of the features that you see down there in Florida, some of the same stuff maybe? Um, yeah, a lot of it is real similar. Um, and as far as I think the question was like, why it's important. I mean, it's important because obviously the deer, the deer relate to the terrain. That's their home, you know? Um, so if you can find those points, and those little islands and those little trees. Um, one thing I'll say, well, well, when you get a lot of, a lot of pressure, um, I see bucks kind of using those lone tree type beds. Um, not a terrible amount though. I've I, I found that down here, they really like a little spot, um, where they've got a canopy and they've got shade that, that, you know, it's just, it just, it gets so hot. I think it's just a, a really big deal for them. Uh, that's what I've been finding with a lot of mature bucks that on uh, the last few years I've been paying more attention to it. Um, cause I, you know, I'd see one of those lone trees out there and I'd go stomping out to it thinking that, you know, there's going to be, and there's not, there's not a bed there. I'm like, man, it's too perfect. But then they're up, they're up. And it depends, like I said, with the pressure, cause pressure, pressure will definitely push them out there. Um, and also, uh, the amount of deer, if there's a, if there's too many deer up in the more favorable spots, then it'll push them out there. Um, and then, um, yeah. And then another big thing is just the way that, they, they seem to always be set up, um, for some sort of wind or thermal advantage. It just, 
almost every single big buck that I've seen moving or have found, um, you know, where he's hanging out, where he's bedding. It, it just seems like they are always keying in on where that wind kind of funnels through or, um, or where those thermals are dropping and sinking. It, it seems like, well, it doesn't seem, I, I know I'm completely, completely clueless when it comes to figuring out how and where the deer down by you would be feeding. You know, I, I can understand the bedding. The bedding seems like somewhat consistent with what we have up here. Um, but I'm trying to figure out how like my understanding of food sources would translate down to the South and down in the stuff you're in. And I'm not sure it does. Like what kind of stuff are they feeding on down in this swampy wet country? Um, and how, like, what are you looking for when trying to figure that out? So number one is the same as with you guys, pretty much, um, it's going to be oaks, you know, why don't we get a lot of water oaks, live oaks, um, and the deer will definitely come up and hit those. Um, but honestly, I am not real. That's something that I've, I've been trying to step up my game with is, um, food source, uh, and identifying. Um, but honestly, I don't down here, these deer just, they nip here and there. Uh, it's, it's really similar. If, if I could put it into like, is big woods. Uh, what I hear those guys talk about hunting in the big woods up in the Northeast, um, that translates really well to what I've seen in, in most of Florida. Um, you know, they're going to browse. A lot of times there is food right in their bedding, um, as far as browse. Uh, and if it is in a really wet area, they eat a lot of aquatic, uh, aquatic plants. I see them feeding in the water a lot. That makes sense. Well, the, the, the next step, I guess, in my mind is taking all this digital scouting. We're looking at maps. We're looking for these features. We're laying down waypoints. So this looks like a good point. This looks like a good island. This looks like a, an edge worth checking out. Um, and then, of course, if you have the time, hopefully you're going to get a chance to go out there and, and check it in person, ground truth it in, in some kind of way. Um, Doug, I, I, I've read that you don't have a lot of time to do on the ground scouting anymore. So you focus primarily on in person or in season or sorry, online or maybe a little bit of in season stuff. But can you lay out for me, you know, with your limited time, when you get some kind of available bandwidth to get some on the ground scouting in, like what is the key thing that you're focusing on or, or something unique that you key in on uh, other than like, you're going to go look at this stuff. Uh, is there any more detail you can provide as far as the stuff that you're specifically really focusing on or um, prioritizing? Um, down here in most of Florida, I would, uh, even though I'm not a big guy on, on sign hunting over sign, um, if you can find some good sign, because, uh, there's just not as many older deer. Uh, and when they make sign, usually it's for a reason. Um, so definitely finding some, some, you know, better buck sign is a, is a huge thing. Uh, and if you can correlate it then to what you either already have scouted on the map or can look at, you know, there on the fly and kind of piece the puzzle together on why that sign is there. And if you can make a game plan, um, so yeah, honestly, if, if I'm trying to scout, it's usually, I'm usually not scouting to look to see what the terrain looks like. Usually I know what it's going to look like pretty well. Um, it's more of trying to, you know, ground proof as far as, is there, you know, a good one around here? 
So I don't know if that answers your question. It, it does. What what's quote unquote good sign look like in Florida? Because I'm I'm guessing it might look a little different than good sign in Iowa. Yeah, I've never been to Iowa. <laughs> I've not had the pleasure, but um, I've been to Missouri. That's about the closest. And yeah, it, it's it's very different. There are some small places, uh, some small parts of the state where there's actually pretty good deer numbers, and you can get into some better sign. But you know. For most of Florida, good buck sign, you know, for some guys, it might be any buck sign like that, that, you know, anything might, might get them fired up. Uh, me, I'm, I'm looking for bigger than average rubs, bigger than average tracks. Um, if I'm doing the kind of scouting, like where I'm actually looking for beds and obviously bigger, you know, bigger beds, even though we don't usually get those well-defined beds, um, you can generally, if, if there's something there you can look at, you can t- tell kind of the size of the deer that's been laying there. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's the same thing that you would look for anywhere else. It's just scaled down. I mean, the big the big sign, the big tracks that I'm looking for might look like doe tracks in the Midwest. <laughs> yeah. And what about a bigger than average rub? What's a bigger than average rub look like by you? Um, anything that, man, that's, that's tough to answer. But, you know, anything that's getting up where the center of the rub is up above your knee, that's going to be a two-year-old or, or better deer. And then we do get the occasional, I've seen some places that were ripped up where it's, you know, the rubs are up to your chest and that's usually a deer that has pretty long tines or a pretty wide rack or is, you know, tall or maybe all those things, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, Joe, what about you when it comes to your on the ground work? Is there anything kind of unique that you're looking for other than just like confirming that, yes, this stuff you saw on the map has some sign, anything kind of next level or specific that you do that maybe is a little bit different than others? I wouldn't say, I mean, next level, but to kind of take it a slightly different direction, not necessarily even just maps for us. We have to confirm that there's big deer living in the area. So shining is a big one that I'm assuming they can't do. They don't do in Florida. I don't know. I shouldn't assume that they don't do it in Florida, but just uh, confirming deer exist in the area through shining um, and what fields they're using and what areas they're in. I, I guess I'd be curious if that's something in Florida or or not uh you are legally allowed to shine i believe i don't do it so i don't know if there's time frames i know you definitely cannot have no weapons in the car <laughs> <laughs> yeah right i got well, a question yeah, for um, joe sorry go ahead yeah. joe no go ahead um all right sorry about that um so uh, i'm curious what you're seeing kind of up there around wisconsin can you kind of touch on a little bit of like where, you know, maybe like in the marsh type setting, where you're seeing doe bedding as opposed to buck bedding. And then also just kind of maybe blend that into like where you're, where in your experience have the, the biggest, oldest bucks. Has there been a certain type of feature or type of, uh, of pocket of cover where you've seen the biggest, oldest bucks bedding? Sure. So in the swamps, um, I've seen, I've seen spots where you just have one solo buck kind of bedding on some bogs. And then the next year that buck is gone and you've got eight or 10 does on those same bogs. Um, I've seen that. I I guess where the biggest oldest ones are is usually some freak overlooked spot. Um, I know it's kind of a cliche thing to say nowadays, but like you take a look at, I mean, for, for the Listeners, if you watched my one video of the buck I shot over his bed, he was with a great big old buck and just a little point that wasn't getting bothered. 
Um, now that's not swamp, I guess, but that's an overlooked spot. There was another one, um, really the buck got very old. And when we finally did find where he was hanging out, it was between three, three parking lots, kind of down in some little cattails, just a little hole next to like a little Creek. Um, it's just, it seems like it's those overlooked spots. If it's too obvious of a spot, they just don't make it to an old age. Yeah. That's kind of been my experience too. It's like, it's either the overlooked or it's just those ones that are just like so hard to get to like they're the farthest away from access or it's just uh there's some sort of barrier like a a river or some standing water or something that you got to get to it's just like it seems like those two things um are where i found you know either the the biggest bucks or the biggest buck sign um but that it could be it could be any one of those features that we talked about it could be you know a little tiny island it could be a, a lone tree out there or or even some, some of that, uh, some of that dogwood, but it just seems like those two things are where if, if I really think back where I found the, the oldest and the biggest bucks, um, what about you, Doug? Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Um, yeah, I mean, it's tough. Cause like you guys know, it's all so situational. Um, but I'll say it seems like the biggest, oldest ones, um, they're very rarely actually, in those spots where you look at a map and it's like a, a neon sign. I mean, once in a while, like you said, if they're real far from access um, or something like that, they'll be using that traditional stuff. But it seems like the ones that are kind of sliding through like the seams, you know, the gaps in the pressure, they, they've got some little spot that works for them. Um, and a, a lot of times what I've been finding lately is they like those real, I don't really know what they're called. They're not exactly a point. Um, of dry ground, but they're more like, I call them like a belly. It's sort of like a kidney bean shape, um, little knob, a little, little bit of higher ground. And they seem to really like that because it, it doesn't just give them this real small little spot. It gives them kind of like their own little area. Um, you know, and like I said, if it, if it has that overhead canopy with the shade, it's got brows, if it's got, you know, security on the backside, whether that's deep water or, or cattails or whatever, um, it, it seems to be that when I'm finding, you know, like if I shoot one and backtrack them to his bed or, or if I happen to jump one or, or something like that, it seems to be in the last few years I've been noticing that they're in these spots that are just subtle and they just, they don't really scream at you. Even if you walk right by it, I've, I've, I've found a few within the last few years where I've walked within bow range of that bed several times and never knew it was there. Um, and that, that kind of stuff is kind of hard, uh, you know, to relay you know, on a podcast, but if you spend your time out there and you really comb through stuff, um, one thing I've been telling guys, if you, if you know, a big buck is in like a certain area and you can't find them, man, turn on your, turn on your GPS tracker and, and, and grid it. Like you're looking for a shed or you're looking for a dead deer because sometimes you are literally walking right by them. <laughs> yeah. That's good stuff. Andy, what about you on the, uh, well, you, you just mentioned a little bit on that front, but back to the, the on the ground stuff, you know, Doug just mentioned, sometimes you've got a grid search in area almost to really identify those little hidden spots. You just seem to be a master of scouting anything, but I know this stuff in particular, is there anything you would add when it comes to the on the ground side of scouting out these swamps and wetlands? Is there something you do uniquely or something that's particularly important to you other than just covering a lot of ground you know i i always 
have said, like, I don't think necessarily that I'm the best at reading maps or even picking up things, uh, scouting as, as some of these guys out there. But what I will say is I'm very, very thorough. Like I will scout the same areas multiple times, even though I've walked everything, I will walk it multiple times. Cause I miss stuff. Um, I miss stuff that I'm sure some other guys wouldn't. Um, and it often takes me, I, I, I think I pick up on the obvious stuff, um, but it, it often takes me two or three or four times, say, scouting a, a marsh to really get a grasp of everything. So I will purposely go out there. Um, there's this one in particular that I'm, I'm really trying to learn. I had a, a, I've had a couple of good encounters out there. Um, well, it was a couple of good encounters two years ago, and then uh, th- that same buck was out there this year. And I've been out there three times in the last week and a half. And it's not that big a piece, but I'm really just trying to dissect it. And it seems like every time I go out there, I learn a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. Um, and, and I've also, I've always thought this about myself too. It often takes me a few years to really kind of master a certain area, um, uh, yes, I can often dive in and, and take a good buck out, but to really, to really learn it intimately, I feel like I'm a little slower than, than some guys that, um, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I'm not sure exactly why, but I, I feel like I'm a little slower to pick that up. So I actually spend more time. I might take twice or three times as much time out there as, you know, a guy like Joe or a guy like Dan or, or, or Doug. Um, I don't know that for sure, but that's, no, I don't think so. That's what I have to do. (laughs) Nope. I I think we're in the same boat and that's exactly what I was alluding to is, you know, I've spent, I don't even want to know how much time reading maps and thought I was pretty good at it. And like I said, some of these spots I've hunted them for years and, um, you know, I, like you said, scouting the spot two or three times, even doing it within a short period of time, going back that second and third time, I think a lot of guys, they scout something. And they say, well, I scouted it just like they'll look mm-hmm. at a map and they'll say, okay, well, I know what that looks like. But when you stare at that map and then you shut it down and the next day you stare at that map again <laughs> and you stare at it again, new things pop out at you. Um, and it mm-hmm. happens for me, it happens looking at the map and it happens on, you know, boots on the ground all the time, man. Yeah. Well, that's good. <laughs> that's good to hear. That makes me not feel so bad, but I, I do, I feel like, you know, I pretty much, I do what you guys do. I work those transitions and then I branch out from there, but I do, I comb it the whole thing. Like, honestly, like you said, Doug, like I'm looking for a dead buck because that's the only way I can make sense of everything. To be honest with you. Um, I don't think I'm as quite as good as like reading a map. Um, although I do think marshes and marshes in particular are, are some of the easiest to read. I don't think I'm as good at it as some guys, so I do need to be just extremely thorough and often I need multiple hunting seasons out there to really get it. And then things start coming together and then I find it. I, I feel like I end up finding it really easy to hunt once I figure that out. Um, but it, it takes me a while to get there, even though I might take a good buck out, you know, early on, it's, it, it takes me a while to get there where I feel like I really have it figured out. 
O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called The Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work. Try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months. Wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of six sick folks. Or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription. And you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor, no waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at twc.health slash meat eater, but you got to use the promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater, okay, at twc.health slash meat eater. So should we move on to some of the actual hunting kind of styles then? Because um, if we've we've kind of covered well the things to look for when you're preparing, scouting with your map, scouting in person, scouring this stuff, trying to learn it. But it's a whole nother step than trying to take that information and actually apply it once hunting season's open. Um, I, I don't know. I, Andy, where, how do you want to – I don't know where your head was at with this, but, but do you have any thoughts on how you want to start – this part of the conversation or should we just start basic and and just see uh favorite favorite ways to approach on the swamps what do you want to do yeah let's do that let's um let's maybe have them dive into a couple of different scenarios maybe that they've experienced or, or some tactics that they use say like maybe like that early season in the swamps or marshes um you know kind of some textbook stuff or or maybe maybe a couple of stories of some mature bucks you've taken. And then I'd be more interested too, to hear about the rut in the swamps and marshes, because that's, I haven't had as much success in those areas during the rut. I've killed some deer there, but most of my success has come early to mid October to that late October timeframe. 
And then, I don't know, I, I just haven't had quite the consistency during the rut in that type of, uh, in that type of setting. So I, I'd be curious. So, and, and going even into late season too, cause Joe, I know you've, you've had some great, uh, late season hunts in the, in the marsh. So how about we start with you? Yeah. So that, that's a tricky one. Um, gosh, in, in the early season, the biggest thing is, is do they know they're being hunted yet or not? Um, cause you could, you can catch them. I mean, like I, like I said earlier, right on the edges of the swamps, it seems where they're, they're not pushed in deep. They're not, um, it almost seems like they're not bedded so much with their nose in mind. Um, and then once the pressure hits, it seems like now they start bedding with their nose and their eyes. It, it, if they can use their eyes in the swamps, it's a little bit harder, but sometimes you get like a hillside where people are walking down off of down into a swamp and, and the deer are watching that a lot of times. Um, so yeah, once the pressure hits, it kind of seems to change. Uh, during the rut for, for me, I'm kind of in the same boat as you. I had a little more success this past year during the rut, getting onto deer. The, the big thing I noticed in the swamps during the rut is when a deer is in a certain area, um, whether he's with does or, or not with does, it seems like he's just in that area for a few days and then he's gone. And then he might loop back through a few days later and then he's gone. And that's kind of something I've noticed with the wireless trail cameras. Um, and then in the late season, boy, it just, the late season, it changes so much. So like up by us in the late season, you might have a 30 degree day or you might have a, a minus 10 degree day. And in those swamps, they, they shift around so much. So they might be when it's a little warmer, they might be kind of in the dogwood, in the open, um, chewing on dogwood where they don't mind a little wind getting to them. When it, when it gets a little bit colder, a little, a little nastier, then they're tucked back in the real thick stuff trend seems like keep, keep the wind off of them. So it really varies. And I guess when I think about it in all those scenarios, one thing I see a lot of is when you have a buck using a bed or, or using a spot, it doesn't seem like it's for a real long period of time. He's there for a short window. And if you don't capitalize on it, he's, he's off doing something else or, or it's going to be a few days before he's back through there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, uh, it's interesting you say that because I was, um, I was out scouting, um, last week and I sent this polo, which is like a, it's like a video message app. I was sending it to, uh, Joe Elsinger and Justin Wright, um, of this, this little cattail marsh where there's this little Island in the middle of it. And it's small. I mean, it's the size of like my living room. And there was a, a, a Boone and Crockett sized buck that I was hunting here in Michigan a few years ago. And he lived across this major highway. And every year during the rut, he would, um, he would venture across into the side that I can hunt. And I had hunted him the year before he was like a, like a, a low one fifties eight. And, um, I, that's when I really kind of figured out his pattern. I was like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely going to kill this buck next year. And I was, I had, I was all in on this buck. In fact, the whole season, I was basically foregoing everything else locally. And I was basically every night that I had, I was sitting observation just so I knew exactly when this buck got into that marsh. Cause that's what he had done the year before. And it was like late October and he, all of a sudden he started showing up in that marsh and I could see him out in there and he wouldn't move far off that Island, um, in daylight. And to be honest with you, I, there's the, the property line where I was hunting. Like I couldn't actually hunt the marsh, but I could hunt right up to the edge of it. And he just wasn't coming my direction in daylight, but he had 
the year prior as the season went on, like into the rut. So I was just biding my time observing. I started seeing this deer. I started getting pictures of them, um, after dark. And then it was like, you know, an hour before or an hour after dark, then 30 minutes after dark. I mean, it was, it was accumulating exactly how I thought this would play out. And it was, it was just about time to move in and start hunting this deer, like in some, in some, uh, some funnel areas. And he ended up getting poached out of some guy's backyard over by the highway there. A guy shot him with his handgun out of his car. But I said, the reason I bring that up is because he showed up in that little marsh just for a, a very brief time. He wasn't there before and he wasn't there after, but you, if you didn't know that you would never have a chance at this buck, but, um, it was, <laughs> it was very cool. I sent the, I sent the video of that little, that little bedding area, but, uh, yeah, <laughs> that brings back a heart, heartbreaking memory. <laughs> That's a painful one. Now, Andy, if yeah, you, if you, if you could have hunted that spot, let's say it was all open to you and you were hunting those observation stands all those days leading up to it then you finally see he's here what would you have done differently if you could have hunted right in there can you describe exactly how you would have approached trying to hunt him if you didn't need to wait off back on the edge like you did yeah so where i could only where i could access to i could see about 150 150 yards 200 yards into that into that marsh um and and he needed to come my way, but he was going parallel to me. So he was, he was actually working out of that island. The few times I saw him in daylight, he was slowly kind of working out of that island. He was nipping on some uh, red brush, just kind of browsing. Um, and then he was working his way up, like into the fringe area where the hardwoods kind of dipped down into the marsh. So he he was making it to the edge. Like if I could have hunted that edge. It was like a little, it's it, like we talked about a bowl, like a, the, the, where the hard edge uh, or where the edge of the, the woods creates a bowl instead of a point. Um, he was working right into that. So had I been able to access that property, I, I could have gotten a crack at him there probably in that late October timeframe. But he was, what he was doing is he was kind of slowly getting out of his bed and he's working up into that. And then he was laying down sign. He was really starting to hit the scrapes and, and rubbing up his area and stuff. He was just basically keeping tabs on the does is just starting to check on the area. And then when the does started coming in heat, that's when we really started, you know, seeing him move. So there were guys hunting that property. They just, they had no clue that that's where he was. I, I knew just because, uh, the history and the, and the, the sightings and the trail camera data, I kind of put it all together, but it was, it was very interesting because they were all hunting up near the food, which was quite a ways away. And this buck wasn't making it anywhere near, you know, there in daylight. Um, in fact, when he would make it over to where I uh, was hunting, like the year prior, he was doing it all via like security cover. He was never like um, showing himself out in the open. So they, he was, it was, it was very interesting how that deer was just living right under their nose and moving right under their nose. But, um, you know, that's, I mean, that's a testament of like how, how most hunters, a lot of the average hunters out there, they'll sit on that field edge and they'll see, you know, 20, 30 does and handful of younger bucks. But you know, that big one is, is surviving back in there in the cover. So, yeah. Uh, did you want to pitch that same question you had for Joe a second ago, Doug's away? You might maybe repeat it. Cause I, I forgot what it was even. So maybe Doug did too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah. Um, basically, um, 
maybe touch on your strategy um, of hunting in the swamps or marshes kind of early season, kind of taper that into like the mid season rut and then maybe even late season a little bit. I know that's a, a long open-ended question, but you can kind of touch on your strategy there. I will do my best. Uh, yeah, I love hearing uh, you guys talk about um, all the history that you get with bucks. That's, that's awesome. I don't, I don't run cameras or any of that, so I don't get to do that. But I think the way that you and Joe, the way that you're able to figure out deer is just incredible. Um, but anyways, uh, so what I find, and I think Joe said the same thing in early season, um, I've made this mistake of uh, over hunting a swamp, you might say. Um, I've done this both in-state and out-of-state. Uh, to where I'm trying to dive in and those deer aren't in there yet. Um, unless there's food in there, unless there's oaks back in there, those deer are generally, uh, like Joe said, they're out on the edges. Um, what I've actually found, it, it's kind of funny, is it seems like those those bachelor groups of bucks will be also where they can watch access. And it's like the first time that a hunter comes in there and you blow them out of there, they won't be back in there again until next summer. Um, so you got to be real careful um, because once you kind of go in and they know, yeah, it's hard early season. Once they know they're getting hunted, it's really hard, uh, to kill them. Um, so yeah, that's been my experience there, but, um, you definitely can do it. Uh, the one great thing I will say, uh, early season, um, not so much in my state, but out of state is if you can get into like that mid September, those bigger deer are pretty much all rubbed out. And if you can find those rubs, I mean, you're, you're, you're going to be in the money. And that's a, that's a really good thing for somebody that's just kind of traveling just looking for any good buck, you know, um, that's something that I've had some good success really keying in on. Um, and then once you get to, you know, I guess closer to the rut, I mean, everybody kind of knows how to hunt the rut, you know, the funnels. And I like a lot of, um, what I key in on a lot is like the deeper water because it forms sort of like a back wall um you know deer obviously they swim great i've seen them swim rivers and and lakes i've yet to see a deer really swim across deep water in a swamp um, unless they're getting out to a bog or something like that but um so what i like to do is find where where those deer are cutting around that water and if i can access somehow um behind that you know whether it's wading through some deeper water and then actually climbing up like say there's a cypress tree that's in that water uh, and i never have to cross that trail um it's just money because a lot of times that deeper water uh, especially if there's sun hitting it, it it's going to pull those thermals soon as the, you know in the evening and the morning it's going to pull those thermals and then once sun comes up uh you know obviously your thermals are going to be going up and i've just found it to be really bulletproof um and then late season, I, I really don't have much experience with late season because our rut in Florida goes all the way through into March into some parts. So, I, you know, w- once we hit the rut, I, I pretty much follow the rut um, all through all through the year. <laughs> <laughs> Doug, I, cool. I've read you describe your hunting style as, quote, a by any means necessary style. <laughs> uh, what does that mean? And why is that? so effective for you, especially in places maybe like this swampy country? Um, I think it's effective like anywhere. If, if you can get out of your own mind and out of the box of what everybody tells you of how you have to kill deer and then, you know, how you have to kill a big buck. Um, you see a guy like, uh, Justin Wright, the, uh, the way that he's killing these deer is phenomenal. He's, he's sliding in, in the bedrooms. 
and sometimes killing them the same day that he stomped them. And a lot of guys would tell you that, you know, and I know Andre DeQuisto kind of marketed that whole thing. Um, but, you know, I've kind of developed the same thing. Of if you're doing what everybody else is doing, you're going to get the same thing. So, you know, I kind of thought to myself when I was younger is, you don't want to just be a deer hunter. You got to be different. You got to figure out something that's different. And I mean, even like still hunting through flooded areas, guys will tell you, I mean, you can't really, you can't still hunt through a flooded area unless you know how to walk silently, which is a discipline in itself, walking through water and not making noise. So, um, I, I think just getting outside of the box, using your head. Um, and I think one of the biggest things is, is understand if you're going for a mature deer, is understanding how they use their nose um, because so many times, you, you know, the game is over before you, you even know you're in the game. Um, so I don't, I don't know. That was a bunch of, <laughs> there's <laughs> a lot not too clear. There's a lot to unpack there. There's some good stuff. I, I have to ask about walking silently in the water. You said that's a, that's a tough thing to do on its own. So how do you pull that off? Anyone who hunts in a swamp, will probably have to do something like this, whether it's in gator country or beaver country uh, or points in between. So what's the, what's your trick to pulling that off? Uh, just going slow, being silent. And there's certain depths of water too. When you get, oh, I don't know how deep it actually, maybe it seems like six, eight, maybe eight to 10 inches of water. You can move at a pretty good clip and make minimal to no noise. Um, but, you know, it, it sometimes it, it's, if it's shallower water and you got muck, I mean, you're literally having to lift your foot up out, wait for the drips to come off, slide your foot back in. Um, and obviously you're not doing that for miles. You know, you're, you're kind of bumping into a spot where you're expecting to maybe run into a, a deer, um, either bedded or, or moving through that area. And you're just sliding through. I mean, it's just like, it's just like still hunting in the woods, you know, like crunchy leaves. Um, you know, you, you got to work around with what you got. Um, but yeah, it's mostly uh, balance comes into it too. And that muck, when you pick your one foot up, uh, you better have some balance. Otherwise you're going to make a lot of noise when you go stampering sideways. Yeah. I understand that when you do this still hunting through standing water, that you do some, what you call cover calling. Can you, can you describe that? Yeah, I've done that in the past. I, I really haven't done that lately, but basically, um, like if, if you're sliding into an area and if you do it enough and you jump enough bucks, you kind of get a sense for like, man, I feel like there might be a buck right up there. And a lot of times when you get into these areas, when you get back in these, because what usually when I'm, I'm still hunting one of these flooded areas, it's because you really can't hunt it from a tree. You really can't hunt it from the ground effectively, unless you, you know, went in cut lanes, whatever before this is a, a, an area where a deer has, unless they're doing drives or, and stuff like that, they, they have not um, come in, in contact with humans being in there hunting them, um, especially a human that can walk <laughs> slowly and quietly through the water. Usually <laughs> they know from, you know, half a mile away, here comes a guy sloshing through the water and they know right where you are and, where, and when you're coming. And when you can slide in there quiet and then you make a few calls, even old bucks, I mean, they're sure it's another deer. Like there, there's no doubt in their mind because there's no way that somebody could have slipped in there on them. Um, and, and I found that to be effective. Um, I, like I said, I don't do a lot of that anymore. Um, mostly because I don't hunt those areas as much. I hunt further up North where there's 
better deer. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. Anything else when it comes to trying that still hunting approach in any kind of swamp? Any other considerations, you know, how you're, when you plan to do that? You know, if there's certain days that you would do it and others you wouldn't or certain situations or uh, anything? Yep. Uh, definitely try to stay away from doing it on the weekends. Uh, I've gotten several bucks killed <laughs> um, either by other hunters. I actually jumped one up and got hit by a car. Um, you got to be careful about what you're doing when you're moving those deer around on public land. Uh, if you do that, I mean, and obviously I'm also really not doing it during prime time. I mean, the worst thing is come sliding up on somebody or, or like I said, you jump a deer and then he gets shot or shot at or whatever. Um, so yeah, midday, I like to do it. Um, so I said, I don't do a lot of late season hunting, but there is one area that I do hunt. It would be considered late season as well after the rut. Um, and that is actually how I like to hunt that area because I can scout it while I hunt it. Uh, generally late season, midday, not a lot of guys in the woods. You bump a deer around, he's generally going to be all right. Um, so yeah, I definitely, you know, and then like during the rut, you do have some guys who will sit all day. So you might not want to do it too much when other hunters are in the woods. That, that'd be my thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Andy or Joe, uh, do either one of you guys employ the ground approach in the swamp too? I, I can imagine there's, I mean, I've, I've done it myself actually, where there's situations where, you know, there's, there's some reason to want to be in a spot, but there's not a good tree. There's a lot of swamps where there's just cattails or just stringy little nasty trees and there's nowhere good to get elevated. Um, uh, Andy, do, is that something that you're thinking about often and have you pulled it off? Yeah, I have, n I do a lot of still hunting, but I haven't done much in the swamps or marshes. Um, I have hunted from the ground or very, very low, like out of the saddle. Um, I've talked to Joe a little bit about this because a lot of times, um, you get some, it, it, sometimes it's hard to find good trees, especially, um, where you need to be for these, some of these older bucks. A lot of times there, you know, yeah, there's these hardwoods, these hardwood islands or points that go down. And yeah, if, if they're coming up in there in daylight, like, like Joe said, maybe early before, the, you know, the pressure really hits and maybe you got some acorns dropping, then, then it's a little easier. You can probably find a good tree to get into, but when they're staying out there and they're maybe only getting to that transition edge or, or, um, not quite getting up into the high ground, um, in daylight, a lot of those trees on the edge are, they're not really conducive for a tree stand or saddle. Some of them you can, some of them you can get just low. And like what I've told joe about is a lot of times i'll i'll get I'll find a tree like that and i'll i'll set up in the saddle literally at ground level or or six inches or a foot up and just use that tree as my cover um and then i got a you know basically a ground level shot and i might be covering i might be covering a trail or one or two trails or, or a scrape right on the edge or something like that um but a lot of times i'll be hunting just right from the ground and i'll just tuck myself you know kind of in the shadows like off to the side um kind of I guess, uh, perpendicular or off to the side of where I expect movement to be. I haven't done a, uh, a large amount of that, but I've done a fair, a fair amount. Um, and I know Joe, um, I'll let him get to this, but I, I know he's, he's told me of a couple situations where he's hunted from the ground on some of those islands, like way out there. And I think his buddy does that quite a bit. So Joe, what do you got in that regard? Yeah, I'm, 
I'm not going to be the expert in ground hunting. Um, and that's where we got to get Jordan on one of these podcasts, but Jordan has done super well. Um, because you get these, like, like you kind of mentioned earlier is you get these high spots, there's no trees around and he'll just tuck himself kind of down into the cattails, say 20 yards from the bed. And uh, a lot of times those deer are only moving 20 yards before dark and he's just sitting on their trail or off to the side of their trail. And when they come through, um, you gotta be ready. You have a split second to get that shot in there. So uh, I, I wouldn't be the best person to talk to about doing it on the ground. Now, like Andy, I believe you said that that big six pointer that you shot this year in Ohio, that you did that with the saddle, your feet were on the ground, right? And you were kind of leaning back in the saddle. Yeah, I was, uh, I actually had the platform, but the, the platform literally was like five inches off the ground. <laughs> so it, yep. that wasn't really it wasn't really swamp, but it was, it, it, it was very, um, it was swamp. Like it was, it was very tall grass, like kind of, uh, kind of like CRP, like very tall weedy stuff with some pockets of cover. So it, it did kind of was similar to like a, a cattail marsh, um, cattail marsh in some sorts, but yeah, I was, I was basically at eye level. Um, and that's the way I've set up a lot of times in the marsh there too, right on the edge. And that's, that's another good point too. On, in the swamps, you have to be so careful in trees because you don't have that many trees. And once you start sliding up one, suddenly you've got eyeballs looking at you and you, you don't even know that it's happening. Whereas say you're hunting hardwoods or farmland, um, you, you could climb trees and deer can't see you. But in the swamps, it's a little different. You have to, you, you, sh- you got to make that decision. Do I really want to climb this tree? Is it going to burn me if I climb this tree? So that's something kind of different in the swamps too. Can, can you describe like, in a situation like that where you think that you could be with an eye shot, eyeball range of a bedded deer, and you're worried about getting too high up there, have you found any kind of sweet spot? I, I know it's going to be dependent on the tree and a lot of specifics, but if you had to say like, man, you know, if I can get at least six or seven or nine or 10, or is there any kind of like sweet spot that you typically try to get into that's low enough that you're not going to get eyeballed, but high enough that you're still out of, you know, most sight or, or anything you're thinking about. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm asking an impossible question, but anything you think about in that situation. Yeah, not necessarily. I think what it comes down to is in the swamps, a lot of times you have your one trail that you're shooting and you got to get up just high enough that you could shoot that trail. But then you, you do kind of run into the problem. You got to consider the deer are going to be sunk down into the muck. So now is their whole belly going to be covered up? So you got to make sure you can get high enough to make a good shot to that trail where you're expecting the deer to come through. But you got to also not be so high that the entire rest of the swamp can see you. You know, you almost just have to use your gut, use your best instinct, um, consider where all the deer are betting and, and think to yourself, can they see me? Um, I mean, obviously, if you scouted in spring, you can figure a lot of that out. But um, when you're hunting in the moment, it, you usually, you don't have that luxury, you know? Yeah. Uh, bouncing over to you, Doug, on this topic of trees. Um, I've, I've, I've read a handful of interesting things I keep referring back to that, uh, that made me very interested in your style. And one of the things is that you are very particular and patient when it comes to picking the right tree. Um, supposedly sometimes taking 30 to 45 minutes just standing there thinking about it. Um, sometimes I feel like I do the same thing. Can you, can you tell me, is yeah. that, is that accurate? Do you still do that? Why do you it's do that? Very accurate, man. Okay. And then walk me through your thought process. Like what are the things you're thinking about to get to that final decision? 
Yeah. Sometimes like, sometimes I'm trying to help pick a tree, like for, you know, my uh, buddy or whatever. And I think that like, <laughs> they think that I'm zoning out, but really you're dropping milkweed. You're looking at what it's doing when the wind's blowing. You're looking at what it's doing when the wind stops. You're looking at what you think it's going to do when the sun sets, you know, and the thermals kick in. And, but sometimes I think a lot of stuff like what Joe's talking about, I mean, you really don't have too many tree options. So you have to get in where you can. And, um, and like he said, he stole the words out of my mouth is like basically just high enough to get a shot. Um, you know, it's kind of, it's like as high as necessary, as low as possible is, is the way that I like to hunt. But, um, and then what's going through my head is, you know, like Joe said, I mean, if you got one trail, it's pretty easy to see where, where that deer is going to come out. Um, but if it's a little more like ambiguous, then you got to really kind of dissect it um, as far as the options of where that deer is going to come out um, and where you can shoot to from which tree. And then obviously, like I said, your wind, because you can't have your wind going the wrong way. Um, at least not when he's going to come by, which, you know, that's a different thing is sometimes the wind's going the wrong way but you know, it's going to settle down and you know, those thermals are going to kick in and you know, he's probably not going to come by until after that. So you set up for that. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's, it, it's probably would be funny if some people could watch me stand there and look at three different trees for 30 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> you brought up the wind. Uh, let's, let's talk a little bit about the unique wind or thermal impacts when hunting in swamps especially when you've got standing water i would imagine there's some different impacts i've seen some different impacts there uh is that something you can describe at all in your situation doug you got i mean are the temperature swings wild by you or is it always kind of hot and humid i'm i have no idea how that might impact thermals or wind changes and stuff like that what are you what's going on for you in that um, yeah, so it is pretty wild, um, temperature changes usually, but like early, like September, October, it's usually hot, humid, muggy, uh, even at night. Um, but, uh, yeah, like you said, with the thermals, I think one of the big things down here that I've noticed is like, it's so hot. The sun is so intense that I think that it really heats up, uh, any of that water that it can get to. I mean, if you walk in there in the morning before sunrise, I mean, it, a lot of times I wear like jungle boots or sneakers or whatever. Um, and it's like stepping in bath water. Uh, if you're, if you're stepping through a water, uh, a, a space that is like exposed when the sun is up. So even all through the night that, that water is warm. Um, and that definitely pulls a lot of thermal activity. Um, it's almost like a magnet, like a thermal magnet and it just sucks everything from around, uh, from the dry ground. So how then do you factor that into, you know, planning where to hunt and how to, you know, pull a fast one on a buck that seemingly would be able to take advantage of that. Yeah. So, the, I mean, the bucks are definitely keying in on that, um, where they can, but you just have to find a spot where you can get in. Um, and a lot of times I like, I really like to hunt below the water line because a lot of times those bucks are kind of right there at the water line, right below it, you know, depending on what the terrain is, what the pressure is. Um, and if you can find a way to access it and, and climb down thermal, uh, of him, it's, you're kind of in his blind spot and it just, it's, it usually works out pretty well. <laughs> I'm not following you. How are you hunting below the water line? What do you mean by that? Uh, so basically you know where the water you know so if you're walking from the dry ground toward the swamp you know at one point your feet are going to start getting wet and then as you go deeper into the swamp that water is going to get deeper 
Um, so depending, you know, the, and that water line is obviously right where the water starts or I, I, yeah, I gotcha. where the water usually is. And that's generally within that area, depending on the terrain, depending on how fast, you know, the terrain falls off and gets deeper, um, you know, it's going to dictate where that deer travels most of the time. But he's generally going to travel at or below that water line to catch all those thermals that are getting sucked in uh, from the dry ground. I follow you now. Okay. Uh, Joe, would you would you add anything when it comes to wind or thermals in wet, swampy stuff? So exactly what he said, if you're, if you're sitting, if you've got the option to sit on the edge of a swamp or just into the swamp, I think that's kind of what he's saying. Um, he nailed it on the head. You kind of want to be in the swamp because at last light, you got your scent sucking down into there. Um, to, I guess from a more broad perspective for me with the, with your more open cattail swamps around here, the wind is pretty consistent. I mean, you can almost, you can almost look and see what the prevailing wind is and that's what it's going to be. Um, you've always got those different little things that can kind of mess up winds in certain spots. So you got to pay attention. Um, when you get into the cedar swamps, that's where the wind gets really sketchy and it really starts to swirl. And I guess that's another thing that just makes cedar swamps so difficult to hunt is you, you do have those swirl spot, swirly spots and you say you get a west wind and it might swirl one way you get an east wind, it'll swirl a completely different way. And that I think dictates the bedding a little bit too. Um, in those cedar swamps, I've got one spot where a hill kind of butts up to the back of it and the winds will kind of swirl around that hill. And uh, the deer will bed right at the bottom of that hill in the in the cedars. And it, it just, it, it can be very difficult in the cedars, I guess, is is my experience. Yeah, I hear you there. Andy, what about you? Would you add anything on that one? Um, no, I think they pretty much covered it. The, the water thermal thing, <laughs> that took me a long time to figure out, by the way. I felt like an idiot. Like, I was getting <laughs> busted so much. Um and I never figured that out. Uh, it, it, it might've been from someone on the hunting beast when I, you know, years ago when they finally clued me into what the heck was going on there. Like even hunting like water holes, you know, early in the season, um, you know, like I'd have the wind in my favor and things would die down and it felt like I'd still have you know, a slight wind advantage and deer would come into the, you know, the water hole or, you know, to take a drink and I'd get busted. Um, so it took me, it took me years to kind of figure that out. Um, and then I started hunting it, um, using it more to my advantage. So there's one spot in particular in this marsh where I used to kind of blaze through the cattails and there was a sweet tree that was, it, it, it basically this, it's like a, it's like a Creek bottom, but on each side of the Creek bottom is like cattails and then, you know, red osier dogwood. And then it kind of, you know, blends into like some Oak ridges and then fields. But anyway, the, the way that it's shaped, it tapers down and like all along that creek bottom is, is bedding. And during the rut, it was just an awesome, awesome travel corridor for bucks. And it kind of pinched down in this one area where I like to hunt. And there was this one tree that was kind of out in the middle of this funnel and that I, it was just in the perfect location. It was a great tree with great cover and I hunted it and deer would often uh, pass by between me and the water, they're, they're, they're the creek bottom edge. At, you know, at, uh, in the evening and I would get busted early. This is early season where it's still kind of getting warm, you know, get, the temperatures are warm during the day and then they cool, but the water temperature is still warm. And that's where you're starting to get that. I would get that, that pull there and I, I could not figure it out. And then finally I started, I got clued in out of that. So I started paying more attention. Well, then I started coming in, I started wading through that Creek and there was a, a tree that was literally, I step up right off the bank and I climb my tree. Like I, it was, right on the edge 
And then all of a sudden I could hunt that spot and I was completely bulletproof. <laughs> and it, it, it took me a while to figure that out. And I wasn't quite where I needed to be for archery range shots. There were some deer that passed by in range and some that were just out of range. But the, what's cool about that spot is I could hunt it repeatedly. As long as I had a somewhat of an east wind, even if it dwindled down to light and variable, I could count on those thermals um, to pull towards the water. And, you know, I would drop milkweed. It would go right to that water, and then it would kind of follow the way that the stream was was running. Um, but it was cool. I mean, I literally could hunt that. If I wanted to hunt that 10 days in a row during the rut, I could. I would not get busted. Um, and I killed a lot of deer out of that tree. But it, it was it was good when the uh, that that pull would happen when the temperatures were still you know getting up into the you know 70s 60s even 50s but once it started getting colder that that pull wasn't nearly as strong and sometimes non-existent so that's something to keep in mind too it's a great example uh andy i know you've got a bounce here pretty soon and, and we're going to wrap this up entirely here pretty quick too but do you have a final question or topic you want to run by these guys before you've got to take off yeah i got i got one question um so we talked doug you mentioned it uh joe i know you think about this too quite a bit in the swamps and or marshes you know there's going to be some bedding that is wind specific you know that they're they're they usually bend bed here with this type of wind coming off the land you know coming off the high ground or whatever and then there's going to be these other spots that are more any type wind where they could be there on any given day and most days. Can you, from your guys' experience, can you maybe touch on a few of those or where because of the terrain and the features, it's, it's a wind specific bed. And if they're, you know, if the wind isn't blowing out of this direction off this piece of high ground or whatever, they aren't there. And then, and maybe some other examples of any wind type bedding. Um, let's start with, uh, Doug. Oh boy. Okay. Um, so I would say most of the beds that I know of are any wind. Um, it's very, very rare for me to find a bed that I think is, uh, wind specific, mainly because I feel like in the swamp, it's not just the wind. Um, I think they're mainly what I've found by me is they're mainly keying in on those thermals, the thermal activity. Um, and then they're also using at least one, if not two other senses, meaning, uh, they're using their sense of sight or they're using a lot of times a sense of hearing. And I think that they just feel so secure when there is standing water around them. Um, especially if they can see up toward the dry land where any, anybody would normally come from. Um, I just feel like they feel like they're bulletproof. And, and I will say, I, I do think they gravitate to those spots that are in favor for them for the most predominant winds, the most pre or prevailing, I forget which term is right, but the, the wind is that is most common. Um, and also I found kind of spots where the terrain, um, I find a lot like in broken terrain um, where it's kind of open, maybe it's kind of brushy. And then there's like some uh, scattered, maybe like islands of, um, of trees where it, those, those little islands actually kind of pinball the wind. And it seems to always, pinball it into the same spot or into on, you know, toward the same line. And those bucks uh, seem to key in on that. Um, I'm trying to think of one that is wind specific. And I just, I just can't think of one 
that I've, that I've ever found. And I also don't run the cameras like you guys do a lot. So I don't have enough Intel to say like, yeah, this buck is here every time on a, on a, you know, a North wind and he's never here on a South wind. Um, it's just, it's not something that I've found. Yeah. How about you, Jim? All right. Joe. Yeah. yeah. I, he, I was afraid to say it, but he said exactly what I was thinking. I just don't see that much wind specific. And I think it's, I mean, I'm just going to repeat everything he said. It's, it seems like it's just more that they feel so secure in there. And I think what it really comes down to is their nose. They haven't smelled humans in those swamps for say weeks or months. And they just feel so secure in there that if a human does come tromping through there, they're going to hear it and they're going to be able to get out of there in time. I don't see it that often. Now, before I talked about that one, um, the cedar swamp situation where when the wind is hitting, if you can picture, just picture like a rectangular cedar swamp with a, a circular hill on the side of it. When the wind is hitting the side of the hill that the cedar swamp is not on, it seems like the wind almost comes around both sides of that hill and kind of meets right in that one spot. And that then there's a lot of deer. It, in my experience, in that particular spot, I've seen it where you could just count on deer being in there, but to hunt it is extremely difficult. Um, but yeah, I haven't seen that much wind specific. I, I'd be curious to hear what Mark and Andy have to say on this. Yeah, uh, Andy. Just, just real quick, I wanted to piggyback on that sorry um what he said about like that island or that hill i do see that as well um and sometimes they will kind of position themselves a little bit different for the wind you know um but i don't see them betting in a completely different area um just because the wind is switching i know you got to bounce andy but do you have 30 seconds to give us an example of this wind specific betting yeah, I'm I, I'm good as long as I'm you know as long as I'm done at like seven forty five I'm good so okay you can edit that out <laughs> sorry well, what what, um, what do you got okay so I it's it, you know this is it's obviously really hard to prove this right because we're not we don't know if the deer are there um I feel like the times that I have seen where it's where I think it's more wind specific is when they're bedded like right off of a point. Um, and a lot of times that wind is coming like down off the point off, like the main woods or the main high ground. Um, and, and they're bedded right off that point, maybe a little, uh, a little clump of trees, like right off that point in the cattails or something. I, I feel like if there's any that's wind specific, it's that now, as far as like the islands, or, you know, the pockets that are way out there in the marsh or the, or the lone trees where it's like kind of surrounded all by thick cover, all by cattails or all, all, all by, um, you know, good security cover. I feel like those are more any wind. Um, but, you know, I, I'm not going to go out and say for sure that they bet only bet on those points, you know, on a specific wind because I've hunted them when the wind isn't quite like that. And, I've still had deer come in. I just haven't, I haven't killed a good one with the wind, like blowing right in my face on a point, but I have killed a couple off of a point with my wind blowing out into the swamp and it's just missing that bed. So I don't, I don't know. I, I would, I defer to someone who has more experience, I guess. Um, I have a lot of experience in this type of setting, but I don't know that I'm confident enough to say one way or the other, but if I was going to point to one, that it seems more wind specific is, is when there's a point coming off the main ground, the main woods going out into the marsh and the deer are bedded like right off that point. 
makes sense at least. One um, thing, one, if, if I can add one thing. So, well, well it kind of seems like we're all kind of saying the common thing. It doesn't see, there's a lot of non wind specific betting. One thing that is very specific with the wind is how early they seem to be willing to get up and actually move. So, I mean, if you've got it where the wind is, if they can leave their bed and have the wind in their nose, it seems like they're much more willing to get up early versus if they, if they don't have it in their nose and they can't scent check as they're coming out of the swamp, it seems like they'll move a little bit later. So that's one, well, a lot of the betting doesn't seem specifically wind specific, how they move in and out of it and what time they do does seem that way. Yeah, that's a good point too. They, they could, they could have been there and just not getting to where I was in daylight. Um, that's why I said it's, it's kind of hard to prove. Um, but yeah, I don't know. That, that's good stuff to hear you guys say that you don't see much wind specific though. That's, that's pretty, pretty eye opening Cause I was, I was kind of convinced on the point thing that I had it figured out, but maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> but you might, you might, you might have the point figured out. I think it also has to do with how many options the buck has. If there's different points that are good for different major wins, then maybe he does bounce around to the best point for that day. Uh, but I just don't have enough experience with tracking specific bucks on specific wind to really say that that is or isn't. I, uh, I love the level of the level of like nuance you can get with this kind of stuff. Like I, I don't have enough experience in this specific instance to say anything, but I just geek out about the fact that there is something to say about it. <laughs> like the fact that, that we can sit here and, and kind of go back and forth about all the little intricacies of how these bucks might use these specific terrain features. Like that is why, hunting and really diving deep into a specific kind of habitat just fascinates me. Like just trying to really understand how these puzzle pieces go together at this level of detail. It's, it's the, the top of the peak, I think when it comes to deer hunting, um, it's, it's just fun, let alone how successful it can make you be. It's just fun. Um, in that being the case though, um, as much as I'm enjoying this, I, I do need to wrap things up on my end. So I want to just end with a quick rapid fire kind of question for each one of you guys um, and, and kind of leave it there. And my question I'd like you each to give me your take on is what do you think the biggest mistake is that most people make when hunting in a swamp? Like what's that one big thing? Or, or one specific, maybe it's not the biggest, but if it's one specific thing that you think matters a lot, that a lot of guys or girls are probably screwing up on this terrain. Uh, Joe, what, what jumps out to you first? Yeah, the first thing, and it's the thing I did wrong for the longest, is uh, just messing around too much. You know, you, you kind of, you, you read some sign, you think you figure out a spot, and you're just in there too much, messing around. And uh, you just really need to stay out of those spots. And when they're when they're ready, or when you know that deer's coming out of there, jump in and kill them. That's this is the biggest thing. Is people just mess around too much. All right, Doug. Um, I got two in my mind. One is access, but everybody pounds access and um, the importance of it. But uh, one big thing that I found in Florida is sitting all day. Guys think that bucks don't move because it gets too hot. And most of the deer that I've killed have been between like 10 and three ish. Uh, and a lot of them over 90 degrees, those bucks will get up and move. So pack your lunch. That's my, that's my tip. Wow. And what about you, Andy? One final mistake that you want to make sure I don't make next year. 
<laughs> I'd say I'd say most guys get intimidated by it as far as um, accessing where you really need to go to get it to the big ones. So um, if you can get past, you know, the, the, the mental block of maybe having to wade in, you know, up to your belly button or to kayak in through some stuff that you're not sure you're going to get out of or, um, you know, walk in sinking up to your knees. If you can get past that, I don't think that they're terribly hard to hunt, but some of these spots that you need to get to, to get to the older bucks are hard to get to. So if you can be mentally tough enough to, to do that, I think, um, you'll be way ahead of the, the average guy out there. Wise words. All right, Andy, Doug, Joe, thank you all. This is, uh, this has been a lot of fun and I know there's a lot of folks that are going to benefit from it. So, uh, thank you. It was fun, man. I enjoyed it. Thanks. Yep. Thanks guys. Thanks guys. All right. And that is a wrap. I hope you guys learned as much as I did in this one. Man, there's so many places across the country where there are swamps or wetlands or marshes or cattail, you know, potholes, whatever it might be that that you can apply these kinds of ideas to. So I'm hoping a lot of you are going to be able to take this to the woods and use it this fall. Uh, with that said, I will just offer a couple quick reminders. Number one, make sure you are signed up for our Whitetail Weekly newsletter. It's the place that we share all of our new whitetail content from the Meat Eater and Wired Hunt team. You can go to TheMeatEater.com to sign up. Uh, secondly, make sure you're following Wired Hunt on Instagram. And I think that's it for the moment. A lot of exciting news to come in the next couple weeks. I'll be sharing with that with you soon. But until then, thank you for being here. Thanks for your attention. And stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust-Resistant Griddle. So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. This griddle heats evenly edge to edge, reaching all the way up to 500 degrees. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle.